Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah, nahmuduhu ve nesta'inuhu ve nestağfiruhu ve nu'minu bihi ve netevekkelu aleyhi. Ve na'udhu billahi min şüruri enfisina ve min seyyiati a'malina. Men yehdihillahu fela mudilla lah. Ve men yudlilhu fela hadiya lah. Ve neşhedü ve la ilahe illallahu vahdehu la şerike lah. Ve neşhedü enne Muhammeden abduhu ve rasuluh. Sallallahu ta'ala aleyhi ve ala alihi ve sahbihi. وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته We gather once again for the continuing commentary of سورة الحجرات So far we have completed 12 verses of the surah and in the previous verse we learnt about the prohibition of suspicion or shall we say excessive speculation and conjecture spying and searching for faults and backbiting And this was in the context of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaking about brotherhood. And then highlighting certain things which must be avoided in order to establish and preserve that brotherhood. And just to remind ourselves about the theme of this particular surah. We named it a Medinan society on the basis that in this surah, which was revealed quite late in the Prophet Sallallahu life, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has mentioned laws, principles, and the very foundations on which a just, equitable, fair, egalitarian society can be built. <clears throat> Liberty with dignity. A law with justice true love and brotherhood, true compassion. And these weren't mere slogans. We saw evidence of that in the life of the Prophet and his noble companions. They lived it, they demonstrated it, and they actually experienced it.
And that is an ideal society which can serve as an example for everyone. Under the leadership of the Prophet and the noble companions And just to recap, some of the principles that Allah has mentioned are recognizing one's boundaries and limits. One's boundaries and limits with Allah, the Creator, with the representative of the Creator, the Noble Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Recognizing one's boundaries with creation, with each other. And that means being fair towards each other, being non-judgmental. If ever we receive reports, news, information about another person, then let alone before we take any action, let alone before we utter a single word, we cannot even form a judgment in our minds and thereafter engender and develop any feeling towards that person based on assumption or based on these reports without actually verifying the facts and ascertaining the truth. Allah then speaks about maintaining peace between warring, differing parties and individuals and that everyone should take it upon themselves to, if possible, intervene and bring about peace and harmony and reconciliation. Of course, primarily the command is given not to all and sundry, but those who are actually in authority. So if it involves conflict on a large scale, then undoubtedly this would be the responsibility of the authorities to resolve. And then further down, in common daily disputes, in social disharmony, then if possible, we are all called upon to bring about peace and reconciliation. And then following on from that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us, ikhwa, that brothers are only sorry, that believers are only brothers. Therefore reconcile your two differing brothers. And be wary of Allah in the hope that you may receive mercy. And then Allah mentions two verses in which six sins are detailed. So what we learn from these three verses, which we covered in the past few weeks, is brotherhood can only be realized primarily through taqwa. Allah says, The believers are brothers and fear Allah in the hope that you may receive mercy. There can be no brotherhood. There can be no true love between people without taqwa. Number one. Two. In the hope that you may receive mercy. In order to receive the mercy of Allah, we ourselves must be merciful and compassionate. So along with taqwa, there has to be mercy and compassion in order to realize that brotherhood. And in fact, this is something which I didn't mention at the time, but we can't just think that taqwa is 
a rigid adherence to the teachings of Islam, of laws, halal and haram, do's and don'ts, of forcefully proclaiming the message, reminding people all the time. One has to balance taqwa, one's personal taqwa, with compassion and mercy towards others. There was no one more fearing of Allah, more wary of Allah, more God-fearing, more God-wary and God-conscious than the noble messenger Yet, his compassion and mercy knew no bounds. And we should adopt the same. Taqwa doesn't mean that we rigidly adhere to halal and haram, do's and don'ts, and we impose the same on others. Many ulama throughout history have acted on what we call azimah and rukhsah, which means, rukhsah means concession. And azima means resolve. So on the one hand we have resolve, on the other hand we have concession. Which means that at times Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created concessions in the sharia, dispensations. Allah has allowed a certain leeway. And there are things that are permissible. For instance, when a person is traveling, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said that fasting is not obligatory on a traveler. Now, if there is absolutely no difficulty, so for instance, if someone's traveling in relative comfort, there's no extreme weather, there's no extreme cold or heat, the person has provisions, the person's traveling in a large group, the journey is only taking a couple of hours, if that. But technically, the person is a musafir, a traveller, because of the distance covered. In fact, in this country, a person could be travelling in a very moderate climate, uh, at w- w- in relative comforts and luxury. And let's say they are embarking on a journey of just two and a half hours, two hours, thirty minutes, It's not even for work, it's just a family visit. And it's in the month of Ramadan. But we're talking about the days when fasting would only be, let's say, 14 hours, 15 hours. Now, technically the person is a musafir, is a traveller. So fasting is not obligatory on them. But at the same time, if they were to fast, they wouldn't experience any discomfort or difficulty. In fact, probably no difference to if they were fasting at home. But still, since Allah has granted the concession, they can forego the obligation of fasting on that particular day and make up for it at another time of the year. So they would be acting on the rukhsah. 
But if they wanted to, since there is not much difficulty, and or there may be some slight difficulty, but it's not impossible, they could act on azima, which means resolve, in the hope of gaining an increased reward. So this is the difference between azima and ruhsa, whereby someone acts on the concession or foregoes the concession and acts on azima and does something with resolve, with a bit more effort, in the hope of receiving a greater reward. Now, ulama throughout history, throughout, especially the saintly pious ones, have always had a policy of acting on azimah themselves and always giving fatwa for ruhsa for others. Always. So, in fact, the Prophet وسلم, when he sent some of the Sahaba عنهم, to Yemen, like uh, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, he said to them, Give people glad tidings. Do not drive them away. Do not dispel them. Do not repel them. And create ease. Do not create difficulty. And so throughout history, ulama have always acted on this. They reserve azim, resolve. They reserve resolve for themselves. And they keep ruhsa, concessions and dispensations for everybody else. So they are harsh with themselves. But they are easygoing, forgiving. And approving when it comes to others. Unlike us, we reserve azima for others and concessions for ourselves. So we want it easy, but we aren't willing to give anyone else that benefit of doubt or liberty. So taqwa has to be coupled with rahmah. And with rifq, compassion, ease. And if someone wishes to adopt taqwa, one should, taqwa is for oneself. It's not to impose on others. One alim, he gave a fatwa. And when he gave that fatwa of something being halal, there was a bit of an uproar. Not because what he said was wrong, but simply because people's cultural approach to that particular question meant that they were unaware of what the texts actually said. So the texts of Islam actually said that this is halal. But culture had developed in such a way that people's cultural attitude towards that particular question was a very negative one. So everyone considered it haram. So when this alim gave a fatwa that it's halal, there was an uproar. And he was taken to task by many people. 
But he confidently, with knowledge, spoke up and said, look, I didn't go out to advertise this particular issue. I was approached by a number of people who asked my opinion on whether this was lawful in Islam or not. So I gave people a very honest reply, which is that to my understanding, after all my research on the topic, and he had extended it, he had researched it extensively. He said, my conclusions are, after all the research, that my conclusion is that this is indeed lawful in Islam. Of course, many ulama have had reservations in the past, but the texts ultimately point to its permissibility. So I was asked that question by many people. I gave an, I gave an honest answer. So there was an uproar. This was his reply. He was then questioned that, do you do this yourself? Do you act on this yourself? So he said, no, I don't. I never have done. And I can never envisage myself ever acting upon this. I choose to stay away from it completely. So they said to him, isn't that hypocrisy? That you give fatwa for others for this thing being halal, and yet you wouldn't do it yourself. So he said, no, there is a difference. One, I didn't come out to advertise this particular issue. I was pressed on this by a number of people who sought my expert opinion on the matter. So I gave my expert opinion, which is that the texts of Islam, in my opinion, and from my extensive research, say that this is indeed lawful. People may agree or choose to disagree. And as far as my own practice is concerned, I've always remained aloof from it, never done it, never will do it, never will go near it, because that's my personal preference. I act on azimah. Even though I consider it lawful, I make it haram for myself. But for others, I will not, say, I will not expect them to act on the azimah that I act on. Rather, I will tell them what the texts say. So this is just one example that ulama have always practiced azimah for themselves and rukhsa for others. They will always make things easy. So this is taqwa and rahmah. Allah says, and adopt, Be wary of Allah, adopt taqwa in the hope that you may receive mercy. So in order to realize brotherhood, one, we must have taqwa. Two, we must have compassion and mercy. And that means even in religion. And look at the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allahu Akbar. We become very easily annoyed. We're in the masjid. Regularly, you will go to masjids and there'll be posters or plaques or warning signs. No children under the age of seven allowed. And one of the reasons is that children make a lot of noise. But, subhanAllah, during the time of the Prophet and in these days, when we see children running around in the masjid, people be become very angry. I remember when, I, when we were younger, 
and I'm sure many of you will have experienced the same. It was quite routine to get slapped around in the masjid by uncles. You run from one part of the masjid to the other and you get a clip around the ear from a total stranger. We used to have these busybodies who had never prayed tarawih themselves, but who, even though they were 40, 50 years old, they took it upon themselves to ensure that all the seven-year-old children were praying tarawih. And as is normal for children, when, when being forced to do something and monitored, they would laugh and giggle whilst praying salah. So, again, clips around the ear. So it, was, it was routine, it was normal. So you used to have these busybodies. And subhanAllah, people create such a fuss when a baby is crying, when children run around in the masjid. I'm not suggesting that it should be done, but where's our tolerance? Where's our compassion? In the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Just a few days ago, someone asked me that we've got chairs. And, but the chairs, there's a function and we need to put the chairs in the masjid for old and disabled people. But the chairs, they come from a company who use them everywhere, so outside and at other functions as well. So is it permissible to bring them into the masjid? So I said, just wipe the legs. Meaning not all the legs, but just the bottom stump. Just wipe the bottom of the stump and put them in the masjid. It doesn't matter. Again, there's some reservation and hesitation. I say, it doesn't matter at all. Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah relates in a hadith recorded by Imam Bukhari. I told them that I used to sleep in the masjid and the dogs would roam around in the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Of course, there was no carpets. But I said, subhanallah, gilab, dogs used to roam around in the masjid of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in masjid al-nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in al-madin al-munawwara. Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma used to sleep there. But it wasn't an issue. A Bedouin came and urinated in the masjid, in the same masjid, at the wall. Sahaba radiyallahu anhuma, of course, they reacted, but the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam actually told them, wait, he didn't want to create any discomfort by cutting off the passing of the water of the Bedouin, lest it give him the cleave. It hurt him. And then the Prophet وسلم, very calmly said, he ordered a bucket of water, a pail of water, and said, have it washed. And then he advised him, don't do this again. And there were many examples. So when it came to children, the Prophet ﷺ used to be giving khutbah on the mimbar. Hassan and Hussain would run in the masjid. And on one occasion, he actually descended from the mimbar and grabbed his grandchildren, lifted them up, and recited the verse, إِنَّمَا أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَأُولَادُكُمْ فِتْنَةٌ That indeed your wealth and your children are a distraction. He would actually shorten his salah. He would shorten his salah. If he would hear children crying, if he would hear infants, children crying, the Messenger وسلم, would shorten his salah. 
and there would be no announcements. So, taqwa with compassion. Taqwa for ourselves, rahmah for others. Not rahmah for ourselves and taqwa for others. So brotherhood can only be realized, one with taqwa, number two with rahmah, compassion. And number three, in the context of these verses, what does Allah mention thereafter, after taqwa and compassion and mercy? Six points, which must be avoided at all costs. Ridicule. Taunting one another. Calling out to one another with offensive, undesirable names and labels. Fourth thing, excessive conjecture and speculation. Number five, spying. Searching for one another's faults. And number six, backbiting. So this is the context of the previous two, three, three verses. And again, continuing with brotherhood, with creating harmony in society, with creating that equality, true, a true egalitarian society. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in this very beautiful verse, which I don't know if it was coincidental or whether it was programmed, but the verse we just heard when that phone came on was the very same verse. يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ إِنَّا خَلَقْنَاكُمْ مِنْ ذَكَرٍ وَأُنْثَىٰ وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَقَبَائِلَ لِتَعَارَفُوا إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ أَتْقَاكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلِيمٌ خَبِيرٌ A truly beautiful, sublime, an extremely powerful verse. It truly is. Allah say, after speaking about brotherhood, after speaking about the sins, and concluding the previous verse on backbiting, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhal nas, O people, Inna khalaqnakum min dhakarin wa untha. Indeed, we have created you from one man and one woman. Waja'annakum shu'uba. And we have made you into nations, وقبائل, and tribes, لتعارفوا, so that you may identify one another. إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ Indeed, the most noble amongst you, in the law, with Allah, is أَتْقَاكُمْ, the most God-weary amongst you. إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلِيمٌ خَبِيرٌ Indeed, Allah is all-knowing, all-aware. This is the verse that abolishes racism, that abolishes pride in one's lineage, ancestry, colour, complexion, ethnicity, family background. It completely destroys it. And the Prophet enacted this amongst the Arabs of Arabia who were some of the most tribal and bigoted people when it came to ancestry and lineage prior to Islam. So much so that the Sahaba عنهم, they 
treated one another as true brothers, regardless of their lineage and their ancestry. And even non-Muslim historians, who do not believe in the past, many non-Muslim historians, who have, uh, who have been serious academics and who have studied Islam, who are familiar with Arabic, one of the main things which they have noted is that one of the miraculous achievements of the Prophet wasallam. So they may not believe in religion, in revelation, in God, but looking at, it, looking at the Prophet wasallam and the society of Arabia from a purely historical social perspective, one of the things they have marveled at is how the Messenger abolished centuries-old traditions of Arabia, not just to do with religion, but to do with family, with, to do with lineage, to do with bonding and relations, to do with blood and ancestry and heritage and replaced the brotherhood and fraternity of tribe with the brotherhood and fraternity of Islam. And that was a remarkable transformation. Truly was. One of the arguments given for the preservation of the EU, especially in today's climate with the current debate, is that the EU has helped avoid wars in Europe. Otherwise, prior to this spirit of cooperation and mutual recognition and the European fraternity, prior to this, Europe underwent centuries of warfare and very serious warfare. And even now in modern day Europe, this is still one of the arguments being proposed for the preservation of the, of the EU as a union. That it has actually prevented violence and wars. And the Arabs had a history of warfare. Why do I give the example of the EU? Despite everything, national sentiments still run very strong. And can you imagine something which suddenly overturns all of these nationalist sentiments and replaces them with something new? in such a manner that the previous rivalries, the previous history, is all forgotten, and not just forgotten, but completely replaced. It's unimaginable. And yet the Prophet ﷺ achieved that in a stroke, in Arabia. These Arabs who bought and sold slaves, who even after freeing them and emancipating them, still regarded them as their unpaid employees. These Arabs, who are boastful of their lineage and their ancestry in every way, suddenly abolished all of that. 
and lived with one another as brothers. Truly. How did the Prophet achieve that? With the verses of the Qur'an, with his own noble example, and with the sheer force of his personality and the barakah, the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when Allah says, Ya ayyuhannas, O people, inna khalaqnakum min dhakrin wa untha, indeed we have created you from one man and one woman. That was a very powerful message. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi relates hadith in his sunan. From Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma. He says the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, on the day of the conquest of Mecca, performed tawaf around the Kaaba, and then he delivered a sermon. And this was at the conquest of Mecca. And he is addressing the Quraysh, and even the non-Muslims of the Quraysh were standing there and listening. And the Prophet ﷺ said to them, O people, indeed Allah has removed from you the bigotry and the arrogance of jahiliyyah and the tradition of boasting by one's forefathers. Allah has created all of you from Adam, and Allah created Adam from the dust of the earth. People will surely, the Prophet ﷺ continued, people will surely desist from boasting by their forefathers and their ancestry. Otherwise, they will be regarded in the sight of Allah as being even more lowly than dung beetles. He actually specifically mentioned dung beetles. Beetles and insects that move around impurity Prophet ﷺ says, those who boast by their lineage, their ancestry and their forefathers, they will be regard, regarded by Allah, even in their huge numbers, as being lowlier than dung beetles. Imam Tirmidhi and others relate the same hadith. The wording is mixed from the different narrations of the hadith. And then in some narrations, he actually recited the verse, Ya ayyuhannas, O people, inna khalaqnakum min dhakarin wa untha. Same verse, that O mankind, O people, we have created you from one man and one woman. The full verse. In another hadith later by Imam Ahmad ibn Hamlin's Muslim and others, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the farewell pilgrimage, when he gave that famous speech, as part of that speech, he said, O people, inna rabbakum wahid, wa inna abakum wahid. O people, your Lord is one, and your Father is one. لا فضل لعربي على عجمي ولا لعجمي على عربي ولا لأحمر على أسود ولا لأسود على أحمر O oh people, there is no privilege, no superiority, 
No virtue. For an Arab over a non-Arab, or a non-Arab over an Arab, or for a red person, meaning a fair person, over a black person, or for a black person over a fair person, a red person, the wording of the hadith. Except by taqwa. Except by taqwa. And in that previous hadith, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and then again, on that occasion, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam recited the verse of the Qur'an and told people, have I conveyed the message or not? And in that previous hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma on the conquest of Mecca, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam actually said, O people, Allah has removed from you the arrogance of jahiliyyah and its boasting by forefathers. Then he said, people are now only of two kinds. فَالنَّاسُ بَرٌّ تَقِيٌّ كَرِيمٌ عَلَى اللَّهِ وَفَاجِرٌ شَقِيٌّ هَيِّنٌ عَلَى اللَّهِ That people are only of two kinds. A pious, virtuous, righteous, God-fearing, God-weary person, كَرِيمٌ عَلَى اللَّهِ who is noble even in the sight of Allah. That's one. Or the other, فَاجِرٌ شَقِيٌّ هَيِّنٌ عَلَى اللَّهِ A sinful person, a scoundrel, a scoundrel, Hayyinun ala Allah, who is despicable in the sight of Allah. Allah created all of you from Adam, and Allah created Adam from the dust of the earth. So in the sight of Allah, there is no Arab, non-Arab, white, brown, red, black, yellow. In a verse of the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ خَلْقُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَاخْتِلَافُ أَلْسِنَتِكُمْ وَأَلْوَانِكُمْ And amongst his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and your differing tongues and differing colors. We are all part of that vibrant creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One's melanin count or lack thereof. One's melanin increased or reduced, one's color pigment does not make one better or worse. <coughs> and we are all related. SubhanAllah. Only yesterday someone sent me a video. I know someone sent me a video and it was of DNA tests where they got people put them in one room and they carried out DNA tests. And some of them were actual bigots. So they interviewed them before the DNA test. And they were asked, who do you like, who don't you like? And some of them spoke with a passion uh, about who they hated. And lo and behold, when they did their DNA tests, the DNA results showed that inevitably, that we're all related, one, but some people actually discovered close relatives and cousins in the same room that had never known before. Two, many of those who espoused bigoted and racist views actually discovered 
that the very people they were rallying against before their DNA tests, they were their descendants. They shared the same ancestry. So we have created you from one man and one woman. So now that colour doesn't matter, language doesn't matter, background, ethnicity doesn't matter. One's origin in it does not matter. With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, people are only divided into two groups. That's the testimony of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As far as Allah is concerned, you are either fajirun taqiyun kareemun ala Allah. Sorry. You are either burrun taqiyun kareemun ala Allah or fajirun shaqiyun hayyinun ala Allah. You are either a burrun taqi, a virtuous, righteous person, pious person, taqi who is God-weary, fearing of Allah, who has taqwa, and is therefore kareemun ala Allah, noble in the sight of Allah, beloved to Allah. Or you are fajir, a sinful person, shaqi, a scoundrel, an unfortunate one. Hayyinun ala Allah, who is despicable in the sight of Allah. Lowly in the sight of Allah, is worthless, as far as Allah is concerned. This is the only division. There are no other divisions. Colour, complexion, language, ethnicity, background, origin, heritage, none of this matters. If it mattered, it would have been the Quraysh. Imam Tabarani relates that once the famous companion Abdul Rahman ibn Awf he heard someone from the family of Rasulullah from Banu Hashim from the Hashim clan loudly exclaim that I am the closest to the messenger Awla Awla means more deserving and closer to the Prophet than, than you. So Abdurrahman ibn Awf corrected him publicly and said to him, There are others who are more closer and more deserved to the Messenger وسلم, and more deserving of him than even you, although you may have your lineage to him. You have your nasab. You have your lineage with the Prophet ﷺ, but that's it. <coughs> Others are closer to the Prophet ﷺ and were deserving of him. What makes a person closer and deserving of the Prophet ﷺ? One who follows in his footsteps. Spiritual heritage and ancestry, spiritual relations are far more important than blood relations. Sayyidina Nuh he had a son, his own flesh and blood. And he prayed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, O oh Allah, spare my son. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him, Innahu laysa min ahlik, innahu amalun ghayru salih. That he is not from your family. In fact, innahu amalun ghayru salih. He is an impious deed. Even though he came from the blood and the flesh of one of the greatest messengers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
blood lineage is not as important as spiritual lineage. And that's a proof. Allah, he prayed to Allah, Allah told him, even though he was his own flesh and blood, his son, he said, He is not of your family. In fact, he is an impious deed. Strong words. In Islam, relationship between father and son, brother and sister, even a husband and wife, will mean nothing as far as connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is concerned. Ibrahim alayhi salam, his father was Azar. His father Azar. Look at who Azar was. And look at who Ibrahim alayhi salam was. Azar would, he would respect his father, speak to him honorably and respectfully, but... He was not responsible for his father's deeds. And father's deeds ultimately did not impact on his son. So his spiritual lineage mattered, not his blood lineage. <coughs> Nuh was a prophet, and look at his son. And then as far as husbands and wives are concerned, brothers and sisters, but as far as husbands and wives are concerned, in Surah Al-Tahreem, Allah gives the example of Maryam alayhi salam, who had no husband. Yet, look at her rank and position with Allah. And Asiya, the wife of Pharaoh, Fir'aun. Look at Pharaoh, look at who he was, Fir'aun. But Allah honored his wife, Asiya, radiyallahu anha. His misdeeds had no impact on her. And vice versa, in the verse previous to, prior to that, Allah speaks of the Prophet Lut and Nuh They were both mighty messengers of Allah, but their wives rebelled against them. Not in chastity, but in belief and in obedience to Allah. As a result of which, they were forever separated. Together in the dunya, but forever separated in the akhirah. Even though they were wives, so the fact that their husbands were prophets of Allah had no bearing on their ultimate salvation. And the, mis the reason th these four women are mentioned in Surah Al-Tahreem is that this was a warning to the wives of the prophets of Allah. And that's why in Surah Al-Ahzab Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya nisa'an nabiyya lastunnaka ahadim min nisa'i in ittaqaytun. That are wives of the Prophet وسلم, you are quite unlike any of the women. That's it? That you are unique? No. On the condition, as long as, and if you adopt taqwa. So even though Aisha and Khadija and Hafsa and Sauda and Zainab and Zainab, even the Maymuna, Sophia, all of them, even though all of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ had the honor of being married to the Prophet ﷺ, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the fact that he was their husband would not avail them if they themselves did not adopt taqwa. And that they wouldn't simply be regarded as being the best of all women by virtue of marriage even though their marriage was to none other than the messenger, 
sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So in Islam, they had to adopt taqwa themselves. So in Islam, spiritual lineage trumps everything else. Spiritual lineage is what matters. Blood ancestry does not matter. That's why Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiallahu anhu said that you may have your nasab from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But others are closer to you, to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam than you. Because in Islam, ultimately, what matters more, I'm not sorry, I mentioned earlier that blood lineage doesn't matter. It does matter, but it does not matter as much as spiritual lineage. And spiritual lineage is paramount in Islam. So as far as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is concerned, the person is either barun taqiyun kareemun ala Allah, fajirun shaqiyun hayyinun ala Allah, person is righteous and virtuous and pious and noble in the sight of Allah and fearing of Allah, or a person is sinful, a scoundrel, unfortunate and lowly in the sight of Allah. This is the only division. Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiyallahu anhu, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told him too, in a hadith later by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad. Abu Dhar radiyallahu anhu, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told him, O oh Abu Dhar, remember, unzur, be mindful, that you are not better than any other person, red or black, except by taqwa. Only by taqwa. And once the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum questioned the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi relates this hadith. It's a very beautiful hadith. They said to him, O Messenger of Allah, Man akramun nas, who is the noblest of all people? See, the Arabs, before I continue, why was this so important? Because the Arabs, they regarded their lineage and their ancestry to be everything. See, we, we may not be able to appreciate it today because we live in a, a very different society. We have governments, we have security, we have authorities, we have citizenship, we have affiliations of many kinds. And in this day and age, if someone wishes to up and leave and go and live alone and renounce the whole family, as some do, they can still lead a very good life. And people do. As long as they are citizens of the country, they belong to a nation, they identify with a culture and with a flag, then whether they belong to their family or not is immaterial to them. Because they have an affiliation, they have an identity, they have a connection. And they won't suffer in any way. The state acts as a family, looks after their health, their welfare, their needs. So who needs families? Some people's attitude. So we live in a society where that is not only possible, but it's, it's not uncommon. Where people lead totally independent lives from their families because the state acts as a family, looks after them. The community looks after them. They have an identity and an affiliation. But 
Imagine at the time of the Arabs. There was nothing. No law, no authority, no protection. So their citizenship, their flag, their identity, their bigotry, their racism, their sense of belonging, all of this stemmed from their lineage and their ancestry. And people still practice that. It's shifted from the family to nations. It shifted from family name to the flag. It shifted from one's tribe to one's country. Boastfulness, bigotry, hatred towards others, blatant racism. But for the Arabs, their racism, their bigotry, their rampant nationalism was all in their heritage and in their lineage and in their family line. And they regarded themselves as being the best. My father, my father was this, my grandparents were this. And this is why the Arabs were so particular about family history. Forget their own ancestry. They even knew the lineage by heart of their animals. It's a fact. We may find that surprising, but it's true. They actually knew the family lineage of we still have it today. If you have pedigree animals, then you are given certificates of their lineage stretching back many, many generations. And so they would have the same. It's just that they wouldn't have it in writing. They'd have it etched in their memory. They would rely more on memory that they had an oral tradition rather than a written tradition. So the Arabs placed great emphasis on their family lineage. And in that context, Rasulullah said to them, that, O oh people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has removed from you and distanced from you the arrogance of jahiliyyah and its boasting by forefathers. Now you are only a God-fearing, pious person, noble in the sight of Allah, or a sinful scoundrel, lowly in the sight of Allah, only one of two. So the Prophet ﷺ was asked on that occasion, that, O Messenger of Allah, من أكرم الناس, who is the noblest of all people? So without hesitation, the Prophet ﷺ said, أكرم الناس أتقاهم. The noblest of all people is the one who is the most God-fearing of Allah. The most God-weary of Allah, the one with the most taqwa. Taqwa makes a person. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhum said, Laysa an hadha nasaluk. That we're not asking you about this. So instantly the, the reply of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was, according to the verse of the Qur'an. They said to him, Man akramun nas, who is the noblest of all people. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa paraphrased for them, Inna akramakum indallahi atqaakum. That indeed the noblest of you, by Allah, is the one who has the most taqwa. And that's what the verse says. So he said to them, That the noblest of all people is the one who has the most taqwa. 
So they said, Ya Rasulullah, we're not asking you about that. So the Prophet ﷺ said, he then thought that they were asking about who is the noblest of lineage? Who is the noblest of lineage? So the Prophet ﷺ said, the noblest of all people is Yusuf Nabiullah, Ibn Nabiullah, Ibn Nabiullah, Ibn Khalilullah. That the noblest of all people is Yusuf, the Prophet of Allah, the son of the Prophet of Allah, the son of the Prophet of Allah, the son of the friend of Allah. Meaning Yusuf ibn Ya'qub, ibn Ishaq, ibn Ibrahim, alayhim salam. So the Sahaba, meaning, if you want to know who has the most noble lineage, then what a lineage? So the Sahaba said, لَيْسَ عَنْ هَذَا نَسَلُكَ That we're not even asking you about this, O Messenger of Allah. So the Prophet said, So what are you asking me about? فَعِنْ مَعَادٍ الْعَرَبِ تَسْأَلُونِي Are you asking me about the minds of the Arabs? Are you asking me about the minds? Of the Arabs. So they said, Yes, O Messenger of Allah. What that meant is that their question was, Who is the noblest of all people? So the Prophet made a blanket statement that the noblest of all people is the one who has the most taqwa. They said, No, we're not asking you about that. So he thought maybe they're asking about lineage. So out of the whole of mankind, the one with the most noble lineage is Yusuf, the Prophet of Allah, son of the Prophet of Allah, son of the Prophet of Allah, son of the friend of Allah. So we're not even asking you about that. The Prophet ﷺ then realized that they're asking about the noblest of people in their context and in their discussion. Because they came from that tribal society, as I've explained, they wanted to know who's the best. Which Arab tribe is the best? Which Arab clan is the best? Which Arab super tribe is the best? They used to have contests. They were poets, natural poets. So all their poetry was, my clan's better than yours. My family is better than yours. But it wouldn't be as crude as that. They were very lyrical and poetical, very eloquent. And poetry hasn't changed. Human nature doesn't change. They, they used to boast about dads, families, lineage, clans, tribes, horses, camels, steeds, arrows, spears, swords, shields, and wine and women. No difference today. Drugs, alcohol, well, drugs, wine, weapons, rides. And the thing about clan, my crew's better than yours, my turf's better than yours, my gang's better than yours. My brothers, my homies, my brethren, or whatever, they used to do the same. It doesn't change. So the Arabs used to boast about their lineage. Who's, so in that context, they said, who's the noblest of all, of all people? They were asking the Prophet Allahu Akbar. 
That's why he said to them, it seems, are you asking me about the minds of the Arabs? The origins of the Arabs? And why did... Uh, and they said yes. So the Prophet ﷺ said, the Arabs are minds. What does he mean by minds? It's a beautiful expression. Minds in the ground are used to extract minerals, rare resources and materials, and precious metals. Gold, gem, gold, silver, gems. But it's extremely hard work. And some mines are better than others. Some mines produce a great yield. Others, hardly anything. So people are like minds. Nobody's all good. Nobody's all bad. But in some people, like some minds, you enter the mine and there you are, on the very surface, you can see glittering gems in the walls, in the soil. You can see nuggets. It doesn't take much work to see the precious metals and resources and minerals. And it doesn't take much work to extract them. And in others, you have to do a lot of digging. And in some, some mines, there may be something hidden very deep, but it's extremely hard work to get to that metal and mineral. And sometimes it's not even worth the effort. So people are like mines. Nobody's all good, nobody's all bad. Some people, their virtue, their beauty of character, their piety, their goodness shines through. It's on the surface. And it doesn't take much to extract it. And there's lots of it. And others, you have to really dig deep to get some <coughs> precious minerals and metals out of them, to get any goodness out of them. And some people, yes, there may be something deep down, but by God, they are hard work. So, Anasu Ma'adi, people are like minds. And then the Prophet وسلم, said beautifully, خياروهم في الجاهلية خياروهم في الإسلام إذا فقهوا. أو إذا فقهوا. People are, the Arabs are like minds. The best of them in Jahiliya are the best of them in Islam. If they gain an understanding of Islam. Now, what does this phrase mean? Remember I said earlier that blood lineage does matter, but not as much as spiritual lineage. So I'm going to say something which may put some nuance to the generalization of earlier, which is indeed, in Islam, what really matters is piety, not one's colour, complexion or lineage. But that is not a blanket, absolute statement with total disregard and no consideration for other factors, as I will explain. Because the Prophet ﷺ told them, The best amongst them in Jahiliyyah are the best amongst them in Islam. What does that mean? 
What it means is that you're asking me about the Arabs. Who of the recent Arabs and, the, and amongst you is the best? Who comes from the best family, the best clan? Who's the noblest? So I will tell you. The noblest of people in Jahiliya are the noblest in Islam. What does that mean? That means that if you look at the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, many of them came from noble families. And because they came from noble families, that nobility shone through in their character. You see, one can't simply boast about belonging to a good lineage if the person is bad. But as I say even in English, if someone comes from good stock, a good family, what that means is even without faith, even without belief in Allah, one's upbringing, one's family history also matters because there's character. So imagine if someone comes from a family whereby the parents were educated. And not only were they educated, but they were good, upright, noble people of good character, of good stock, of good upbringing, of good behavior. They were courteous. They were professional. They were neighborly. They were responsible. They were charitable, regardless of faith. Then they bring up their children in the same manner. And they... This culture of the family, a culture of decency, a culture of nobility, a culture of goodness, even without faith, this imprints itself on the minds and the characters and the personalities of the children. And they then bequeath the same to their children. And they bequeath the same to their children. <coughs> so if someone comes from a noble lineage and family, not just noble by name and noble by birth, but even noble by character, that shines through in a person. And that's how Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. That's why he was the best friend of the Prophet ﷺ even before Islam. His mizaj, his character, his temperament met with the temperament of the Prophet ﷺ. They were drawn to one another. They were attracted to one another. They were the best of friends. They were inclined to each other. And who brought Uthman ibn Affan into Islam? It was Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu Because again, Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu was a man of nobility. He came from a very prominent family. And along with the noble lineage, he had nobility of character and behavior. He would say to the rebels who rebelled against him when he was Khalifa, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, that why do you seek to punish me? What have I done? Allah is my witness that I did not even commit haram in jahiliyyah, let alone in Islam. He would not commit haram in jahiliyyah, let alone in Islam. Same with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. 
Same with the other Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Even before Islam, yes, some of them committed sins, undoubtedly. Some of them lived a life uh, which was common to the Arabs. But we shouldn't have this idea that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were all just extremely sinful. And they led terrible, corrupt lives. No, there were examples of that as well. But on the major part, if you look at the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, Yes, they, they committed certain sins which were regarded as sins later, because at the time they never considered them to be haram. But even these noble ones, they wouldn't behave in a manner which was shameful. And many of them abstained even from haram, even from those things which were considered halal and later became haram because they considered them lowly and despicable and unbefitting a man or a woman of decency. So, many of the Sahaba, عنهم, they were upright, noble people. And this is why when Islam came, they were attracted Yes, some of them came from the same families. Look at the daughter of Uqbah ibn Abi Mu'ayt. That was a noble family. Now, Uqbah, Uqbah ibn Abi Mu'ayt, he came from a noble family. The Prophet wasallam wanted people like him to embrace. But when they chose opposition and they chose their world over their akhirah, they chose their position and their power and influence and wealth over belief, then they became bitterly opposed to the Prophet ﷺ for personal reasons. But they were still from noble family. This is why his daughter and his sons later all embraced. They, they, they embraced. Even Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, his wife and his daughters and children embraced. Abu Jahl, his family members embraced Islam. Though Abu Jahl. And that's why the Prophet even Umayyad ibn Khalaf, his son Safwan radiallahu even Ikrimah, the Prophet when they embraced Islam, the Prophet was overjoyed. Because these were the people he was expecting to embrace from before. And he spoke words of softness and kindness, even about Ikrimah radiallahu and the son of Abu Jahl. Because they did indeed come from noble families. Father Abu Jahl was an aberration. Umayyah was an aberration. Uqbah was an aberration. Because the good stock and the nobility and the decency of the families originally meant that they should have embraced for Islam was a perfect religion for them. And they, were the per- they would have been the perfect adherents to religion. But individually, some of them chose the world over their akhirah. Otherwise, as far as their lineage, their nobility, and their decency was concerned, there was no question about it. So the Prophet ﷺ said the best of them in jahiliyyah. And that's why amongst the, amongst the jahiliyyah, one of the reasons they were highly regarded is even before Islam, many of the aristocracy in Mecca, they weren't the wild type. They were merchants. They were rich. And they played on that. And they were arrogant, undoubtedly. But as far as personal behavior, decency, and character were concerned, people didn't raise a finger against them.
because remember these were the people who frequented the royal courts of Abyssinia of Roman Persia they had trading relations with many of the chief trading families and not just families but the powers at the time they were a people of nobility they dressed well they spoke well they lived well they behaved well yes they were arrogant and in some ways they were corrupt when it came to wealth but in terms of character and decency and many of them, even in charity, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq was charitable. Look at Ummul Mu'mineen Khadija anha. Even before she embraced Islam, after the Prophet announced it to her, she was a first Muslim. How do you think she was as a person, even before Islam? A woman of nobility and charity, of goodness, of character. A woman that even the Prophet ﷺ was attracted to and devoted to during her life, he never married anyone else. So you can imagine what kind of character she had. So this is how many of the Sahaba anhum were. Prophet ﷺ says, خياروهم في الجاهلية You're asking about the noblest of people? Well, know that the noblest of people is not someone who comes from this family or that family, but yes, the best amongst them in Jahiliyyah. If they embrace Islam, then they are the best of all people. Because what have they done now? They've coupled, they've brought together, they've merged the goodness of their lineage, their good aristocratic stock and bloodline with faith, with belief in Allah, with piety, along with their own decency and character. Who could be better than and then the Prophet ﷺ added, إِذَا فَقُهُ And if they gain knowledge of religion, then they are over and above everyone else. So if you look at the grades of the Arabs during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, it was like this. Those who came from a good family, good lineage, good stock, because all of this meant decency, character, nobility. If they weren't believers, then the believers were regarded as being, as being that their aristocracy, their lineage, their ancestry meant nothing if they did not embrace. But if they embraced, then they brought all of that goodness, and with it they complemented their faith and their belief in Allah. That's how the Arabs were viewed. And those who gained knowledge, they were regarded as being the best, even over lineage. This is why during the time of the Prophet amongst the Sahaba because they came from good lineage and good bloodline, they became natural leaders. Who were the natural leaders of the Sahaba You would have seen they were from the leading families of the Quraysh and the leading families of the Ansar, they were the leaders. So the leaders before Islam, many of them became leaders after Islam, because they had those leadership skills and qualities, and character and upright standing. But there, they brought all of that goodness and decency and that character into Islam, and they complemented their religion with all of those good qualities. So this is the meaning of the hadith خياروهم في الجاهلية خياروهم في الإسلام إذا فقهوا that the people are like minds the best of them in jahiliyyah are the best of them in Islam if they gain knowledge. 
Now, so there is some consideration, but ultimately blood lineage never matters as much as spiritual lineage and piety. And that's why I end again with the verse that we started with. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhannas, O people, inna khalaqnakum min dhakarin wa untha. Indeed, we have created you from one man and one woman. وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَقَبَائِلًا And we have made you into nations and tribes لِتَعَارَفُوا So that you may identify each other. What's the meaning of that part? You may identify each other. If you say, I am... from this country, or that country, or I am from this tribe, or that tribe, or this is my family surname. Those names and labels and tags and identities should only be in order to identify each other. That he is Qurayshi, he is Ansari, he is from Banu Sulaym, he is from Banu Salimah. He is from this tribe. He is Thaqafi, he is Qurayshi. That's all. It's not because the Thaqafis are better than the Qurayshis. Or these are better than them. Ultimately, they're all from one father and mother. I've told you before. The Ansar in Medina, one of the reasons the Prophet was invited to Medina is that they were engaged in internecine warfare, which almost brought the whole oasis of Yathrib to the brink of destruction. And they wanted an arbitrator, they wanted someone who could settle the peace between them, who could settle things and bring about peace. So they t- invited the Messenger And who were the main combatants in, and the belligerents in Medina? They were the two tri- major tribes, Aws and Khazraj, and Allah in the Qur'an Speaking of them, says, وَاَعْتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعٌ وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا وَذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ كُنْتُمْ أَعْدَاءً فَأَلَّفَ بَيْنَ قُلُوبِكُمْ فَأَصْبَحْتُمْ بِنِعْمَتِهِ إِخْوَانًا وَكُنْتُمْ عَلَى شَفَى حُفْرَةٍ مِّنَ النَّارِ فَأَنْقَذَكُمْ مِنْهَا And hold on fast to the rope of Allah. Altogether, collectively. And do not disperse, do not differ. And remember Allah's favor and blessing over you, upon you. When you were enemies of each other, then he brought about harmony and love between your hearts. And thus through Allah's blessing you became brothers. When, in fact, before you were on the edge of the pit of the fire, and Allah saved you therefrom. Now, we often hear that verse, cling on together to the rope of Allah. We hear, But this was the backdrop to the revelation of the verse. Allah is speaking specifically about the Aws and the Khazraj. And Allah says, through Allah's blessing you became brothers. But the strange thing is they were already brothers. Because Aws and Khazraj came from the same mother. Going back many generations, the Aws and Khazraj were cousins and they actually came from one family, and collectively they were known as the Banu Qayla. Their female ancestor was a woman called Qayla. And she was the mother, ultimately, or the uh, ancestral mother of all of the Aws and all of the Khazraj. They were brothers anyway. Because they were known as the Banu Qayla. So Aws and Khazraj were not two differing tribes. They were of each other's blood. 
So the fact that we are Aus and we are Khazraj, and they fought wars for many generations, many generations, even before the arrival of the Prophet wasallam, their, their ongoing feud, you know how long it lasted? Not a couple of months, but 40 years. That was the last one. And he was always simmering under the surface. If a camel strayed into the pasture of another, he would be reignited. So, they were brothers anyway. So the fact that you are Osi and you are Khazraji doesn't mean anything. It's just your title, your label, so that you can identify each other. He's Zayd al-Khazraji and he's Zayd al-Osi. That's all. Otherwise, if you really want to go back, Khazraj doesn't mean anything. Aus doesn't mean anything. You are all the children of Qayla. And the Banu Qayla, when it comes to the Quraysh, they were rivals. But again, it doesn't mean anything. They all came from the same family. SubhanAllah. The, in Islamic history, for the first 30 years, we had Al-Khilafat Al-Rashid Ala Minhaj Al-Nubuwa. We had the Al-Khilafat Al-Rashid according to the style of prophethood and the tradition of prophethood sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Then after that we had Amir Muawiyah and after the passing away of Amir Muawiyah what did we have? We had approximately 70, 73, approximately 73 years of the rule of the descendants of Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan and they were known as the Banu Umayyah, the Umayyads. And some people regard the Umawi dynasty from the time of Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan meaning immediately after Sayyidina Ali so for 30 years Khilafah and then from the 30th year onwards to the time of approximately 100 years Banu Umayyah, the Umayyad dynasty this is how historians see it and then after the Umayyads, hundreds of years of the Abbasids. Initially very powerful, the Abbasid Empire, but later only nominal. But remarkable. The whole Abbasid and Umayyad feud was all between members of one family. Because the Banu Umayyah, Umayyah was the son of Abd Shams. Umayyah was a son of Abd Shams. And the Abbasids were the descendants of Al Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib. And who was Abbas? The son of Hashim. The son of Abdul Muttalib, who was the son of Hashim. And who was Hashim? the son of Abdul Manaf. Hashim and Abdul Shams were brothers. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ali radiyallahu al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib, and all of the Abbasid dynasty, the Banu Hashim and the Banu al-Abbas, they all came from the family of Hashim, who was the son of Abdul Manaf. And Umayyads, whether it was Uthman ibn Affan radiyallahu or whether it was Abu Sufyan, or whether it was Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, or whether it was the whole of the Umayyad dynasty, they all came from the family of Banu Umayyah, who was the son of Abd Shams. Abd Shams was the brother of Hashim. 
So these were two brothers, Hashim and Abd Shams. The whole of the Abbasid dynasty came from Hashim, the whole of the Umayyad dynasty came from Abd Shams, who were both brothers, blood brothers, and the sons of Abd Manaf. Ultimately, you are all from one father and one mother. So whether it was Ibn Muqayla, Ausan Khazraj, son of one woman, Qayla. Whether it was the Quraysh and the whole two empires, the Umayyads and the Abbasids, sons of one person, Abdul Manaf. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us of. And the message is relevant today as much as it was relevant then. O oh, people, indeed we have created you from one man and one woman. We've made you into nations and tribes so that you may identify one another, that's it. You are Qurayshi, you are Hashimi, you are Abd Shamsi. It doesn't mean anything. These are just titles to differentiate, to distinguish. Otherwise, as far as nobility is concerned, Allah continues, Indeed, the best amongst you, or indeed the noblest amongst you, is the one who is the most God-fearing, God-wary, God-conscious, and muttaqi amongst you. In Allah alimun khabir, indeed Allah is all-knowing, all-hear, all-knowing, all-aware. I end with this. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst those who recognize this extremely sublime and powerful teaching of Islam. And may Allah protect us from pride and conceit and boastfulness of our heritage, ancestry, our blood lineage. May Allah make us amongst those, that group of people that is noble in the sight of Allah, the bar and the taqi. May Allah not make us amongst those who are regarded as fajir and shaqi and who are lowly in the sight of Allah. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik nashadu an la ilaha illa ant nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk.